Good morning, everybody. Hi, I'm Tim. Nice to see you. Nice to meet you. If we haven't met yet, hopefully that'll change after I'm done doing this. Uh, I do this here. They call me lead minister. That's the title that I accepted here, so I'm running with it. Um, We are knee-deep in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to get into Matthew chapter 6, which I was just talking to Jim Paul this morning, uh, and this week when I was in my study time, I I came to a realization of some connective tissue in the passages we're going to look at today that I hadn't before, uh, but then I also told him that it's likely the case that I'm the last person that's figured that out. So if what I say this morning is like a big duh for you, just know that I'm happy that I caught on at some point. So anyway, uh, yeah, before we, before we uh, jump in, I, I wanted to tell you, I, we, were, we were having some dinner with some friends just a couple nights ago, and uh, it got brought up to me in conversation that uh, I'm not on social media and uh, this, this has been a, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about my history with social media, because I'm sure that's what you want to hear this morning. So I was on social media. I, was, I had Facebook, or friend face, or friend space, or whatever you call it. No, I'm just kidding. It's Facebook. Uh, I was on Facebook uh, starting when I was in college. When I was in college, Facebook was a thing that you could only get on if you were invited by fellow college classmates. And so my buddy Rob Kelly uh, invited me to join Facebook. And early on when you got signed on, it was as simple as like you put your picture and then you listed your favorite bands and your favorite movies and you pretended that you read, so you put your favorite books on there. And, uh, and then everyone could know a little bit about yourself, and then you could get to know. And obviously, Facebook since then has morphed into something far larger than it originally was in, in college. And, and at some point then, a few years later, when, uh, when Twitter, which I think is now called X, I'm not sure why the name changed, but anyway, um, Twitter came out a few years later, and my friend Justin Manny uh, was, was on there, and, and you knew he was an early adopter because he got his name, at Justin Manny, on there. And I joined early enough that I was able to get at Timothy Peace. It was fun. And uh, so when I was on Twitter, that was the one I primarily used. And I, I started to follow fellow Bible nerds. I'd find uh, former classmates uh, from CCU, and then I'd find other uh, theology people, and I'd start following them, and then you could kind of see what they were doing, and and they could see what you're not doing, and uh, and it was real fun. I started to notice a trend occur. Every now and then, some academic would would post a picture of a stack of books. It was their to be read pile. It was well lit. I'm pretty sure they put a filter on it to make the books and the colors really stand out. And they would, you know, put their little 140 characters at the time, tweet, uh, you know, uh, books I'm trying to get through this semester, or these are the books that if I have time to read something, I'll get to these. 
And you suddenly realize that the reason they were posting the picture of the stack of books is because they wanted you, the observer, to think they were very intellectual. They had a big stack of books to read. And maybe, you know, you'd get a little jealous. You'd look through the list of titles and see if there was something that you hadn't come across yet. And, and you'd do that. And, and I'll admit, at one point, so Twitter had, you know, your, your picture on there, and then you'd have like a little banner at the top. And yes, I'm going to admit something. One day, I had my Bible out, and I had a coffee mug. This is like the thing for every stock photographer to do now. And I was sitting there, and I took a picture, and I made that my back banner, you know. I want everyone to know I enjoy a nice cup of coffee, and I enjoy reading my Bible. And yes, it was probably really nerdy because it was probably the Greek New Testament. Because i got to go show everybody, you know. Uh, and then I stumbled upon a book <clears throat> that I actually did read, not one I posted a picture of. It was by a guy named Cal Newport called Deep Work. And in the book... Cal Newport argues for the importance of carving out the space to do deep work, to, to do thought work. If you are in any kind of job where you have to study, read a lot of material, do a lot of writing work, you need space and you need to factor it in and have it be uncumbered by the issues and matters of life in order to do the deep work at the end of the day. And I started taking stock of this because I'm like, well, I'm, I'm trying to finish a dissertation and I always have like lesson plans for small groups and occasionally a sermon to write. And I easily get interrupted by Twitter. And by easily interrupted, I mean I open the app and I peruse Twitter way too long. Well, he had some stats about that. Turns out that just two seconds of doom scrolling on Twitter it takes you 20 minutes to get mentally back into what you were trying to do in the first place. And so Cal Newport basically argues for having no social media. Now, at that point, we had already destroyed our Facebook accounts. Like, I'm not talking, I took it off my phone. Like, Angie and I deleted it. So we didn't exist on Facebook anymore. But despite the fact that I loved following theology people and all of the Reds and Bengals writers, which was also a distraction point for me, I said goodbye to Twitter, and I deleted that too. And I realized that outside of having the occasional FOMO, that's fear of missing out in modern cool kid lingo, I don't know if it's even cool, they made a commercial about it, so... Uh, and in spite of having a bit of fear of missing out and missing details and not knowing the minute some sort of breaking story comes out, it's actually helped me to focus and achieve what I want to achieve. And that's really important because I started thinking about those pictures of books people would post. And I'd have to ask the question, do I want people to think I'm some smarty pants academic or do I want to put in the work to actually know what I'm talking about? Because they're two different things. But depending on people observing you from the outside, you can look like both of them at the same time. When you post that picture of books online, you've already had your reward, to use the language of Jesus. See, when we get into Matthew 6 today, 
we're going to look at a string of passages where Jesus talks about, uh, well, in the translation it says acts of piety, another one could be acts of righteousness. I even like to say acts of worship because they're, they're things that we do as devout people on a regular basis as an act of worship to God, to show our devotion to God. But the way Jesus addresses these matters uh, deals with ways that you ought to do them versus ways that you ought not to do them. And they seem on the surface to be three separate things. He talks about almsgiving, he talks about prayer, and he talks about fasting. And he intros uh, the, the three set uh, at one point, and then he closes it out with a, a very famous saying that we're going to conclude on today. And I want us to think about this idea of why we do what we do. And what is it that we're aiming to achieve? What is it that we want out of this? What is it that we want other people to see about us or think about us in the process of what we do regularly? Which also is a good point to make too because hopefully outside of this conversation you might also be thinking, am I doing this thing regularly? Because we're going to find out that these these spiritual practices, these disciplines that Jesus talks about, he doesn't ever say, if you do them. He says, when. Which is also interesting. So, if I've got you excited enough about Matthew 6, verses 1 through 21, we're going to look at it together, and, and uh, we'll, we'll make a few stops along the way. But beginning in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them. For then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. And he gets to the first one. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your alms may be done in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, I want to pause here. We're going to pause at each one of these points because there's some stuff to unpack here. So, first of all, much to the chagrin of people that have studied the Bible a lot longer, there's really no evidence that anyone was audacious enough to go give to the poor or put money in the offering plate and have a, a trio of trumpeters come up behind them and go, burr, 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 hear ye, hear ye, is the most generous person in the land. Look what he has done. Nobody did that. But Jesus is famous in his teaching for using hyperbole, meaning he exaggerates to the extreme in order to make a point. Now, even the language of trumpeting is a little bit iffy. It could refer to someone coming with a loud trumpet and making this big, bombastic show of their giving to some person that is in need. 
It also could be that trumpet is being used as more of a, uh, just a generic sound, as in, you know, there's the collection uh, where you throw your coins in, in the synagogue, and maybe, just maybe, in the process of doing the donation, someone that really wants you to know just how many coins they've brought to put in the plates comes up and really just lets it rip in there so that it trumpets out a loud sound. Either way, it's highly unlikely that too many people did this. But you have to keep something in mind. As we've been going through this series, I've repeatedly brought up this idea that in the world that Jesus is is speaking to, probably about 97 to 98% of the people were living on the bottom of the barrel of the economic spectrum. There wasn't a generous middle class. There was a 2 to 3% rich hoity-toity elite, and the rest of the people were the have-nots. They had to eke out a living. But the people that were in the upper echelon, they wanted to remain there, and they wanted to be seen and revered for their position. And so, for Jesus to speak this way about giving alms, he's really, as we're going to find out in a moment when he gets to prayer, coming at people that are coming to do things that are meant to be markers of devotion to God and doing them instead to retain stature, to be revered by people, to be looked up to, to be put on a pedestal. And Jesus says that's problematic. And if that's why you are going to give alms, you've already got your reward. The person that saw you throw the coins in and bring the trumpeting group, they already think super highly of you. Congratulations. Now, as it pertains to giving alms here, what does this mean? Well, it really in this world can mean two things, and they're not really different things, but the mode and mechanism could be different. To give alms simply means uh, to give charity, to give money to those or in need or a cause uh, to benefit other people. And in the case of the Jewish people, one mode of almsgiving would have been to give money to the local synagogue that you are a part of because there's upkeep. There are people doing uh, work that need to make a living and there is ministry and mission that needs to occur. And so people give. And uh, the reason I said that they're somewhat, those two ideas are linked together is because oftentimes one of the ministries and missions related to a religious establishment within the synagogue is to meet the needs of the poor and the community, which as we've already established, there's probably a lot of. And so if you had, you give, and it can be dispersed, and it can make sure that the synagogue can continue to run. And notice again, as I pointed out before, Jesus said, whenever you give alms, this is not an if you decide to, if you've got some money left over, all this other stuff, it was whenever you give, it is assumed that it's part of your devotion to God and your religious practice that you will give. 
So that's the first one that Jesus gets to. And then he drives it home even more. He gets into the topic of prayer. He says, and whenever, there's our word again, and whenever you pray, uh, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So Jesus does it again. He makes the same point, but he brings up a second matter of devotion to God, and this time it's prayer. And he elaborates in two different ways. He he calls out the hypocrites, as he says, uh, for giving these audacious, loud, um, and eloquent prayers uh, loudly in the synagogues or maybe even in the street corners so everyone can know how holy and spiritual they are. And again, Jesus has in mind uh, the religious elite, the established leaders in mind. But then he also tacks on something else. He talks about the Gentiles who think that they will be heard because of their many words. You see, we're talking a lot when we think about Jesus and his earliest disciples, all of them being Jewish people in the first century. But the Jewish uh, people were uh, obviously Um, under the thumb of Rome, and there was a lot of Greco-Roman Gentile influence into uh, their world and their worldview. And so oftentimes, uh, ideas from the non-Jewish sector would bleed into practice for people. So Jesus not only calls out making a show of prayer, but also keeping the people from adopting a very mystical, magical, casting a spell kind of way of praying. As if I utter some sort of special phrases, I will get what I want from God. In fact, then Jesus concludes that thought by saying, you don't need to do all that. Why? Because God already knows what you need before you even ask. And then he gives a model prayer that has been uttered in many church traditions and football locker rooms for all of time. It's okay, you can laugh. I meant that to be funny. I'm just kidding. Jesus didn't give this prayer so that we would memorize it and it would become basically a, f- a form of what he's telling us not to do. Uh, by the way, memorizing anything in Scripture is a wonderful thing, so I'm not against that. But the whole purpose is 
memorizing this prayer so that you can recite it from memory so other people can see that you've recited the Lord's Prayer kind of does the thing Jesus just said not to do. This wasn't necessarily meant to be memorized in the only form of prayer, but it was meant to be a model prayer in the sense that Jesus is saying, these are the things that you should include in prayer. This is what should matter as you direct your prayer. First and foremost, honor God above all else. Ask that God's kingdom will come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Basically, it's your way of saying, God, you are great, and I want to be the way you want me to be so that your kingdom can impact the world. I'm asking you to help make that a reality. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Again, you know, this afternoon, you probably already know what your lunch plans are, but for people that lived in this world that didn't know when their next meal was going to come or what it was going to be, to ask God to give us our daily bread is a profound statement. It's a reliance on God and not our own means to get the thing that we need most for sustenance. And then he says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And this is interesting verbiage that Jesus is using because it, it serves two purposes, by the way. If you live in a have-not situation and you owe to someone that is a have, it might be easy to justify not taking care of your end of the bargain. But the term for debts here can also refer to uh, spiritual debt, as in like sin issues. And, you know, I'm a both-and kind of person instead of an either-or. I think Jesus, based off of this model prayer, has both in mind. See, Jesus is concerned with the spiritual and the earthy, both. They're not meant to be detached from one another. This is a prayer of asking God, who is great, to bring about his will in a world that isn't so great because of our sinfulness and asking God to impact the whole of us. Not just the internal, but the external. And so, when Jesus mentions this idea of forgiving our debts as we also forgive our debtors, we're supposed to care about other people in the same way that we want God to care about us. Both our spiritual well-being and our physical and then he concludes the model prayer by saying, do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. I, I, I love this uh, last bit here because we oftentimes ask questions like, why God, why? And we talked about that in our psalm series before. But I love that in Jesus' model prayer, he gives us license to ask God to make things go easier on us. It turns out that while Jesus several times over teaches us to expect trials as followers, that doesn't mean that that's what God wants for us. There's a difference in expecting them because we live in a broken, sinful, fallen world 
and knowing that when we try to live in a posture worthy of him, we will run into trials of various kinds, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't care about our circumstances and want to make things better and right for us. And he tacks on here as, as, a, as a bit of a, uh, an addendum here that if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Another way of saying this is, is the evidence of your forgiveness is in your willingness to forgive others. Grace received becomes grace given. And Jesus points that out. So if we're keeping score... When you give, meaning it's expected that you do as a Christian, do it to glorify God and not so everyone can look and see how holy and gracious and kind and giving you are. And when you pray, because you should as a devotee of God, do not do so in wordiness and in loudness and to be seen by everybody else, but do it, why? Because of your devotion to God. And then Jesus brings up a third one. So in verse 16, he says, And whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so as to show others that they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast... Put oil on your head and wash your face, so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, fasting is an interesting uh, spiritual discipline uh, because it actually typically in, in the culture that Jesus is teaching in is attached to uh, some what we would deem as negative life circumstances. Uh, oftentimes in our modern verbiage and spiritual talk, we, we do fasting like, uh, like oh, we're going to have a special fast day today. Or, uh, you know, I want to drop a few pounds. I'm going to start fasting every Thursday. Or we even talk about intermittent fasting where you only allow yourself to eat within a certain set of hours and then you just don't eat. And I'm sorry, but I want chips at night when I'm trying to watch my sitcom. No, Jesus is talking about something very specific. Oh, by the way, there's another form of fasting I didn't even mention. We turn everything into fasting. I was talking about social media before. Have any of you ever done a social media fast before? <laughs> Sorry. You don't have to raise your hand to that. Fasting is very specific for Jesus. It means the abstaining from food. It means the abstaining from food. Which, by the way, I know I'm a broken record, but let's remember the 97 to 98% of people that are have-nots that don't know where their next meal is going to come from. And now we're talking about those people who don't always get the meal that they want to eat because they don't have it are still going to fast. And oftentimes fasting is connected to uh, mourning. Not like the early morning. It's like this kind of morning. Because sometimes... Life doesn't go the way that you intend for it to do. I think that is part of the human experience that even we understand. But not just for personal reasons. There can be communal mourning. 
Because again, the Jewish people that Jesus is a part of and teaching are part of an oppressed people group who are longing to be free. And so they have a collective sense of mourning, of devastation, when things go awry, when they don't have their freedoms, when their ability to worship the way that they want to is snuffed out, they will go into a period of mourning, of disdain, of feeling sad and broken. And it's at those moments that either you can't eat or you choose not to in order to focus on God and humble yourself. But you know what's terrible about something that's meant to humble yourself before God? is when you stop eating, even though you're a have, and you're a religious elite at the time, and you just want everyone to know that you're in a state of fasting, so you go around and your eyes are drooped, and you just say, oh, my stomach, and you actually put the trumpet up to your stomach so that they can hear the growling happen. No one did that. I don't even think that would even work. I should try that sometime. Anyway, you get the point. Jesus says instead, basically, wash your face. Do whatever was customary at the time to pick yourself up and to move on. So that the only one that can tell that you're fasting is the one in whom you're showing devotion to, God. So Jesus starts this whole three-pronged acts of worship that were expected uh, by people out. And he says, Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. And after going through uh, these, these three, the almsgiving, prayer, and fasting, Jesus concludes with this famous saying. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust consume, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now this is the passage I told you about at the very beginning that something clicked for me, because I have to be honest with you, I've heard several sermons over the years use that verse and strictly talk about giving. And I talked about giving early because it was an assumed part of one's religious devotion. But I realized this week that when Jesus uttered these words, he was connecting it back to the, not suggestion, the command to beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. When we do things for temporal gain, for clout, to be seen by others, to be put on a pedestal, to gain something that we might not have had that we want, the only reward we get is whatever that fleeting reward ends up being. In the case of the people that Jesus is calling hypocrites, their reward is the applause that they get, the special seat at the table they get, the bowing down as they walk in a room that they get. For us, you know, it might be, uh, I don't know, 
You stacked up a bunch of books on a table and you took a picture of it and you put it online and said, I got to really get to these books. I'm really swamped. So that everyone else will think you're a real smart person because you've got a big stack of books that you're probably never going to read, but you want people to think that you're going to read those books. Or you could just turn your phone off, don't take the picture of the books, and then slowly go through each one of them if you want to read them. You don't need anybody else to know how smart you are if you actually want to learn something from a book. You can just read it without the photo. The same applies here with what Jesus is saying about the practices that we do in order to show devotion to God. You don't need everyone else to know how devoted to God you are all the time to be devoted to God. You can simply pray what is on your heart, what you need, what is on your mind, what's troubling you, what you're joyful about, how grateful you are to how great God is, and not tell anybody else about it. And God will see it. If you meet somebody in need, and they need a five spot, to get a meal. You don't need to go tell everyone after the fact or before the fact that you're going to give them $5 to get food. You can just give it to them and move on. You don't need to tell people how much money you put in the offering plate. You don't need to show everyone how spiritual you are by telling them about all of your fasting moments in life. If you're down and out and you need to humble yourself and focus before God, you can simply abstain from eating and let it be between you and him. If you store up your treasure in the here and now, if you do these things for the reward that Jesus says that those that do those things in those ways get, moth and rust will consume it Thieves will break in and steal it. It is temporal. It lasts as long as it lasts, and then it's gone. Or you can show your devotion to God because he is God, and you are not, and you love him, and you know he loves you, and that you need him, and he is there for you. And when you store up that kind of treasure in heaven, it's unbreakable. Unbreakable. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I want to conclude with a bit of an illustration on the subject matter. So, when I when I quit social media, especially when I quit Twitter, I had some friends that told me because at the time we didn't have Leo in the picture. I said, "Just wait till you have a kid." you'll be back on social media because you're going to want to put pictures of your kid everywhere. And I'll admit, the first time I scoffed at that notion was mainly because Angie and I, even though we have smartphones, have never really been like photography people. Like we haven't stopped to take pictures of each other, you know, that sort of thing, or of whatever pizza slice we have in front of us. And so I never really thought I would be that much of a 
photography person when it came to my kid, that part my friends were right about. I realized that in the last four years, I've taken way more photos on my phone of some of the silliest faces and silliest moments I could imagine. But I didn't get back on social media. And this gets into the other reason. When we dropped off Facebook, we had friends that were going through some really, really difficult times. We were the ones getting the midnight phone calls, the hard conversations that took a long time. And then we'd log on to Facebook, and there would be their bright, shiny face in whatever cool restaurant they were at, showing the world how put together they were. And we, taking the brunt of their troubles on our shoulders, we were kind of depressed looking at their pictures. And I realized something, like, it was hurtful to see somebody else act like everything's put together when it wasn't. And then I realized something. I don't want to do that to other people. Because in my line of work, I know just how broken, how awful life can get. How dark it can get. How needy people can be. And I don't want to give off the impression that I lack need just like they do. Because I'm walking in the muck and mire just like you are. And you know... I could post great pictures of my kid, but if I want the people that I really want to see, I can do the old-fashioned thing and text them to my parents. So that's what we do. I don't need people to think I'm parent of the year because I'm not. I need God to help me be a better parent just like the rest of you all need or have needed or still need or whatever. Those pictures, they're ours. No one else needs them. They're so that we can have memories. Angie likes to send me collages of Leo from when he was one to now four. He's still funny. Think about the way that you devote yourself to God on the level that Jesus does. See, the thing is, for Jesus, it's not about what you do because it's expected that as a devotee of God, you will do it. He never says, if you give, if you pray, or if you fast. He says, when you do these things. It'd be like me saying, if you go to church, while you're all clearly sitting in the room with me. What matters is not necessarily the thing that you do, but the why behind what you're doing. Are you aiming to show your devotion to God and to be grown by God in your faith? Or do you want to look pious and upright and better than everybody else to everybody else that's looking? Well, if you're looking for the latter, it's fleeting, it'll go away, and according to Jesus, that's a bad reason to do anything. But if you love God, if you love people, if you're devoted to God's will, being done on earth as it is in heaven, then when you do these things, you will do them to glorify him and him alone. Hopefully when you were on your way in, you grabbed a communion. 
And uh, I often tell people one of my favorite moments uh, in, in the New Testament and the gospel specifically is the moment of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And no, it's not because I'm a downer or I'm sadistic or anything like that. I love that Jesus in his darkest hour prays to God and needs just his small select few friends near him. Jesus doesn't go run around telling everyone while it's dark and they're sleeping, hey everybody, I'm going to go get arrested and die for your sins. Between him and God, he prays and he is stressed. His sweat becomes like drops of blood. He asks his father to take the cup from him. He asks Peter, James, and John if they'll come stay by him because he is so distraught at what's about to happen. And yet in his devotion to the Father, he says, not my will, but your will be done. And he gets up from that stone that he's praying on, and he walks back, and he lets it happen. Jesus is not only our Savior, but he is our Lord. He is our leader. He is our great example to follow. Jesus didn't just talk the talk in the Sermon on the Mount, but he walked it all the way to the cross so that we had a way to be right with God and so that we could be empowered to walk it too. And that's why we take communion each week is to remember that about Jesus. So I invite you to take a moment to be still, to reflect on not only how good God is, but to have a moment in this moment of devotion to God between you and him. And after you do that, we'll come together and take communion as a church family. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do the same. And in the same way, he passed the cup, and he said, This is my blood, which is poured out for you. Take and drink. Please uh, join me in prayer. Dear Lord God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for an opportunity to worship you together as a church family. We ask that through us uh, that your will will be done. We ask that you help us 
to direct our devotion to you and you alone so that it can not only lead to eternal consequences for us, but so that we can be emboldened to be a light to the world around us. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.